Hey friend, thanks for stopping by. Pull up the chair and have a seat. You know me, I've got some good Tennessee white pine burning here in the chimney, but we better enjoy it fast because it's hard to believe, but winter solstice has already come and gone. And summer solstice is around the corner coming up June 20th, 2021. But listen, hey, chill out. I'm going to run inside and get us a couple of cups of joe. I'll be right back. Hey, you're listening to Guat.Rocks, Rocks, God, the world, and other things. I'm Kenny Price, your host. Our mission, advancing equilibrium in the midst of an agitated world. Well, today is going to be a little bit different podcast than one I've been doing as of late. It's going to probably be quite a bit longer. I'm going to be talking about some very difficult subjects. And I work very hard not to go off into ranting. Last podcast, I had to pull back from the edge, as I said, because there were some things I wanted to say. But it was with a lot of anger in my heart towards the things that are happening to us in our world, not just in the United States, but in our world. And there's a lot of things going on, a lot. Uh, It's coming and pouring forth uh, the sadness and grief from many corridors, not just one. And I won't go down the road on all that. You can name them yourself. But as I begin, I want you to, if you have the time, give time to listen to this. I'm going to self-edit on the fly. I'm not going to second-guess myself. I am prepared. But what I'm saying is you may hear some swallows. You may hear me take a drink of a cup of coffee. I might have to take a break to eat lunch. But I'm saying there are some things that just need to be talked about. I celebrate today that our podcast is reaching people literally all over the globe, United States. And some of these are maybe one or two people, three subscribers, but yet uh, it's exciting. And the reason why I share this is because those of you who help make this podcast possible to know that your money is being well spent, uh, that it's used to help promote the gospel of Jesus Christ across the globe. And literally, I mean across the globe. And I praise God today for the fact that he led me to start this the August before uh, the December when really the Wuhan virus hit, probably hit in November. I think I actually had it in uh, the beginning of February. My wife, I think, had it in December of 19. Uh, we know that the pot, that the virus was here among us much earlier than what they first suspected. But I'm saying God led me to start the, the podcast back in August of that year of 19. And uh, it's been a game changer, enabling me to be able to have a, a voice and a ministry, even in the midst of a lot of clampdown and lockdown and restriction. And so I praise God, and you need to know that it's being heard in in the United States, Belgium, uh, France, Canada, United Kingdom, Switzerland, Philippines, Turkey, Germany. I'm reading off of my podcast stats, Ecuador, and these are like one people each, but Spain, Ireland, Israel, Brazil. And the reason why I celebrate that is folks, uh, and, and let me say that the system that I use through ACAST, they've done a stellar job at weeding out all of the the pings that are coming from people, I guess, that are seeking to do advertising or what have you. These are these are legitimate stats of someone who's clocking in and listening to uh, the message that God has laid on my heart. And so I celebrate that because some of the countries are in much worse shape than we are regarding how the governments are reacting and acting towards the virus. And uh, it's been a threshold of pain uh, much even greater than what the United States has experienced in some of the more totalitarian uh, governments here within our own country. <clears throat> and so I celebrate the fact that uh, God's message is being heard. And in these countries, perhaps where there's a lot of pain, that even one person who hears that good news, like an Ecuador, who's listening to this podcast to know that, wait, there's someone else on the globe that cares. There's someone else on the globe who understands the truth of what's going on, and they're not afraid to speak the truth, but to do it in love. And so today's message is done in love, but it does come from my background, my expertise in study, my education. And so I don't speak as an empty head, but I speak from someone who's been trained in this. And so there are some things that we need to be aware of and the reality of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And let me say that the circumstances that we find ourselves in here presently in the United States with all the disruption regarding the election and the things that are happening immediately. This is to those of you who are Republican, Democrat, Independent, whatever background that you are personally in your politics, you do have to stop and look at the fact that since the election has been settled, that as my senator, one of my state, my, one of my U.S. senators, Marsha Blackburn, for the state of Tennessee, she just sends out a, an email 
And she noted the fact that in the first three days of office, there have been over 30 presidential orders signed. Now, of course, Joseph Biden is not the first president to use the power of the pen. That has been going on for some time. And that is part of our problem, because in fact, if our founding fathers were alive in the past hundred years to see the way that the power of the pen has been used to basically become king and, and issue decrees by fiat, just declaration, and you know, signing a piece of paper, uh, they would be appalled. The, the very thing that they rose up against was that type of action being taken by the monarchy of England. And so you have to understand, and regardless of whether you're Democrat or Republican, that uh, I'm going to talk about something today, I mean, that has to do with all of us. And I know that the rich of this world and of our nation, that the majority, the overwhelming majority of the presidential orders alone, alone uh, have no impact on their daily living. They, they are beyond impact because of the excessive wealth. Okay, at least that's what they think for now. But today's episode, we're going to let it go where it goes. Uh, it's called episode, uh, The Rise of Gaia, All Hail Mother Earth. And uh, anyway, let me just start. And this is some things that I had written previously, but from a different attitude. This is an attitude of communicating to you the truth on how on earth did we get here. And let me say that all the people behind the presidential campaign that won the election, uh, they're not the first. They are a reflection of where we are as a country and where we are as a world. And so at the end of the talk, though, keep in mind where I'm head headed with this is talking about some things, how we got to where we are. But in the midst of it is how on earth then do we get to peace? And that is God's commandment for us and his advancement to us is peace. And so I'm going to end on a good note. I think this whole podcast is a good note. But I want you to know that it's not going to be left with a rant. One of the things that we have difficulty with today are those who would call themselves conservatives who are left in the press. They are constantly issuing the cry of foul, and yet they personally never do anything to change the foul. And that cannot be. We don't need another talking head who points out the flaws and the imperfections. We need people with leadership skills and with financial resources and with the ability to develop teams to address the concerns and the problems that do exist on this planet. And they are many. Okay. So, but this is the beginning coming from an angle regarding Mother Earth of Earth worship, which is being extrapolated into the uh, climate change theology that now is taking control. Okay. But let me just start. America stands at the threshold to finally implement the full ideology of climate control measures to save Mother Earth, otherwise known as Gaia. Look that up. I don't have time to explain it, but I'm not making that concept up. Let me say this. It's not a new concept at all. It's an ancient concept. But <clears throat> as far back as my ministry years in Greenwood, Arkansas, a good church member, a good friend of mine, <clears throat> one of the first people I met at Greenwood, Arkansas, uh, he came to me and or actually called me up on the phone and he said, hey man, are, are you busy right now? Could you come to my office? And he was the uh, manager of a furniture production company that made office desks and made fantastic office desks, desks. Okay. And I said, in my office, the church was actually just literally like two blocks from his business. And I said, sure, I'll be there. So I got there. And he said, come into my office. And he showed me. He said, I want you to see what I found on my copy machine. And I said, what? And so I started to read it. And someone there who worked for him on the assembly line or the production line, I should say, had used the company copying machine to make personal copies. But evidently they got distracted or someone came in on them and they left the items there in the copier. And so it had to do with earth worship, real full-blown worship of the earth as mother God. And he said, Kenny, this disturbs me. Now you're talking over 30 years ago that someone was issuing their propaganda and publishing that to share with others, to share this heresy and this paganism to where they viewed that the earth was something of deity value to be worshiped, literally worshiped. I'm not talking about figuratively speaking. I'm saying literal worship of the earth as God, but that's where we are folks. Our new president, Joseph R. Biden, said in his inaugural address that a cry for survival comes from the planet itself. 
a cry that can't be any more desperate or any more clear, and that we have a climate in crisis. Let me just say, I don't know if you've seen the videos of what actually went down at the inauguration. It was scary. It was spooky. There was no one on the lawn in front of him. There were a handful of people down at the base of that platform that those people ape-like climbed the day that they supposedly uh, breached the Capitol. And if you look at how far down those people were from where the president stood to speak, I don't think he could even see them. But all the way to the Washington Monument, I don't know if you've been to D.C., but the, the United States Capitol, uh, the backside of the building looks to the Washington Monument. From the Washington Monument, if I'm remembering correctly, it looks to the Lincoln Memorial, okay? And it's one long plaza. And so as he spoke these words, he's looking out to an empty lawn. Now, let me say right there, you've got to wonder to yourself, Okay, if you firmly believe in your heart that there was a crisis of the magnitude to warrant 25,000 soldiers and the clearing of D.C., you don't hear the talk about all the businesses that are being economically crushed because of the shutdown there. But folks, it's happening. I watched a video of one of the, the press people who were set up on top of the building that was across from that area where they were given authority to set up their cameras. And it was legitimate. It was not CGI. It was not produced in a studio. You could clearly see that these news reporters were on top of a building that had been assigned to them to use long-range telephoto lenses to see the, the uh, processional, and yet there was no one. And what you have to ask yourself is, I understand, okay? Well, let me back up and say this, that in the last inauguration of, of Donald Trump, that they say over a million people showed up. Wow, how on earth can you ever guarantee that in that group there's not someone who has the capability to carry out an assassination, yet they allowed it to go down. Barack Obama. What I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever shared this on my podcast, but I'm speaking from that which I know, that on two occasions, one was a Hearst police officer that I worked with on a regular basis who was the, um, well, I won't give any more definition than that, but I worked with him very closely, very closely. That was part of what I do. We were having breakfast one morning. He said, Kenny, I don't know what's going to happen regarding the election. This is during the, the uh, presidential election leading up to Barack Obama becoming president. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, they're preparing us to fire on the American people. I, what? I said, what are you talking about? He said, depending on how the election goes. I said, are they expecting something? He said, yes. He said, the intelligence that the Homeland Security people are, are intercepting says that there's going to be a revolution if the election goes a certain way. And I said, well, what are you talking about? He said, the intelligence is telling us that if Barack Obama is elected as president, that there is going to be major revolution and bloodshed and that we are being trained to fire on the American people. It like blew my mind. Okay, fast forward. I'm in Costco, I'm shopping, and I'm on a certain aisle. There's a man, and a, it appears to be his wife, and they're standing there. Their necks are craning, and they're looking up to the upper levels. They're studying something, and I'm going, okay, what are they looking at? It looks like they're looking at a generator. And he said, hey, do you know anything? Speaking to me, he said, hey, do you know anything about generators? I said, well, I know some. I said, what are you wanting to know? He said, do you think that this will power, uh, you know, a, a household? I said, do you mean like, everything, like a whole house power? And he said, yes. And I said, no, that it, it can't handle that. I said, if you're talking about, you know, running a refrigerator, freezer, you know, a single room air conditioner, that it would do that for you. Why? He said, just preparing. I said, preparing for what? He said, sir, I'm an oath keeper. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, I've taken, I've sworn, I've taken an oath to uphold the constitution of the United States and I'm going to. I said, okay. I said, are you expecting something to, that's coming? You know, where you're preparing for, to go off the grid generation? He said, yes, sir. He said, I am a sergeant, and I won't say it was an exceptionally large police department in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. That's all I'll say. But he said, I am a sergeant for the such and such police department. And he said, and they're training on us to fire on the American citizens. And he said, and if that comes to pass, he said, I will stand down and I have 80 men under my care, and I will order them to stand down if it means court-martial. 
I said, they're training you to do this, sir? He said, yes. Blew my mind. And I'm saying this was during the Barack Obama, Barack Obama uh, leading up to the inauguration. Okay? So if you felt like it was that way then <laughs> with Barack Obama, then why on earth were there not the clampdown, the lockups, the lockouts, the restrictions? And what I mean by that, and this is all tied together, folks, that Okay, so you say, but the intelligence community today says that there was nothing on the radar that would suggest that that was a possibility of happening happening at this past inauguration with Joseph R. Biden. And so you have to ask yourself, what is the motive? Why the complete lockdown of the capital of the United States? Let me give you a context. As the senators and congressmen said that this has never happened in the history of the United States, they are absolutely lying because I lived in Washington, D.C. as a kid, and I lived during the worst time in D.C. in the 60s. I have vivid memories. I've shared some of that in the podcast prior, that the people who were burning between the race rights and the hippies and the revolutions, that they were tearing D.C. apart. And the National Guard was deployed, and there was a, a ban on entering the city. And we would have to go to pick my father up at, at the airport, which was, at that time was Washington National and became Reagan National. Instead, my mother would complain because it forced us to have to go all the way to Dulles Airport, which was a long way from our home, about an hour drive, and go around the city. And so I'm saying that what the senators and congressmen have said about the breaching of the Capitol is an absolute lie. It is a retelling of history. And the time and turmoil was just as bad then. But here in this election, the intelligence community is saying that there was no known threat. Okay, but let's say that there was. As a matter of fact, let me just say, if I was getting ready to be inaugurated as the president of the United States, and with the fact that the vulnerability to have a million people in front of you, that I'm telling you that I would probably take extra precaution to ensure for my own safety and my family's safety. So I'm not ultimately having a problem with what action took place. I do have a problem with the extreme, but at the same time, the two presidential inaugurations prior were very, and during a very tumultuous time, and yet no type of radical action was taken. I mean, I think about people in rock concerts that are before a crowd of 100,000 people. If those that love him just decide to rush the stage out of enamorment, it could be catastrophic. When I was a teenager, the Who was playing a concert, I believe it was in Detroit, but the teens got so restless because the, the doors were not open, they finally pushed and shoved, and they ended up crushing to death a bunch of kids. And that was out of love and affection. So please hear me what I'm saying regarding even taking extra precautions to ensure that people don't get hurt. I think it's just smart. But yet in the fact that we have a context where they haven't done this, even today, to look at it and to say, well... But couldn't you, with all of the screens and with all the platoons of people surrounding the structure, allow your own people that voted you in, that are proud of you, to be one? I mean, you, you couldn't set up airport security type measures to where their body scanned and their internal cavities are looked at through the x-rays and to come and to enjoy this time of celebration with you on the lawn? Now, dear people, if you're a Democrat, Republican, communist, Marxist, totalitarianist, you would have to say, wait, something about this is deeply askew. And so during this inauguration, Joseph R. Biden reading from a giant teleprompter right in front of him. And if you look at the sentences and the way the, the speech is constructed, very short sound bites. Because I think anyone who understands where our president has been, that he in fact has some sort of cognitive disability. Okay, he's still the sitting president and I'm going to respect him as such, but you have to say that there's cognitive disability and the speech was written in such a way to be short sentence as it was on a large digital display. But what a tragedy. But speaking from that standpoint, he says that a climate is in crisis. And with that declaration, the debate over climate change has been settled. No vote, no voice of the people. The person who sits in the seat of power by written edict and can impose far-reaching restrictions and implementations has spoken. And folks, again, I'm not cutting anyone any slack. I don't agree with what Donald Trump regarding the presidential edicts. I don't agree with what Barack Obama did, in, did with the edicts, what George Herbert Walker Bush 
Bill Clinton, none of them, because it's not the way our government was intended to be run. And so we're at the harm's way at every president who has peeve, you know, certain pet peeves that they want to carry out. They strike a pen, and then it has to be battled in courts as to whether they can do what they've done. As a matter of fact, the, re- the restriction on deportation of people who have come into this country illegally breaking the law that a federal judge has put a moratorium or a stop on it for now while they go through this process. Every time they go through a process, you're talking hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees paid by someone, most likely the taxpayers. But keep in mind that the global warming hoax that was being pushed by people like Al Gore, who stood to gain great financial wealth through the carbon credit scheme. And folks, if you don't know about that, okay, I'm saying a lot today, put it on pause, go do your own research and find out that how the global warming carbon credits scheme was being set up and that Al Gore and others with him involved in this process were going to personally financially gain by the taxations for you to use energy. Okay, keep in mind that the carbon credits does not stop you from using energy. It's going to penalize you if you do. And so if you have enough money, you just buy your credits so you continue to live life as you please and nothing changes. It doesn't stop any type of a global situation. Okay, but anyway, so it shifted gears. They shifted gears from global warming, which was proven to be a hoax. The charts were manipulated but shifted gears to the new term climate change because the unaltered stats showed that their assessment of the warming trend was clearly proven to be pure manipulation by prejudiced scientists. The Constitution provides that the president shall have power by and with the advice and consent of the Senate to make treaties. Okay, before Barack Obama operated under the Paris Accord, the Paris Agreement, but it was never ratified by the Senate, which it is required to to actually have the force of law. But yet we were moving in that direction just by... uh, you know, silence. Uh, So technically, anyway, let me go on here. President Biden has already rejoined the Paris Agreement. That was one of the first things he signed. Read the Paris Agreement, okay, which if fulfilled to the letter of the law will have sweeping effects and impose great economic hardship and alteration of life as we know it on the general population of the American people. If you listen to the mayor of New York City, he is very overt in the fact that the changes that he's talking about bringing is going to require a reallocation of wealth, a redistribution of wealth, which is straight out of Marxism, and it's going to require the suffering by the people. And if you listen to his video and watch his face and what he says, it's with an attitude of, oh, wow, get over it. This is life, folks. Adapt to it and enjoy it. But those who are rich in economic resources are never adversely impacted by such agreements. Look at the nation of France to see the hardship people are under who make their living by the use of petroleum-powered vehicles, the truckers, the people who haul the goods that support the, the, the citizens, the taxi cabs, which are prolifically used in France. Their fuel costs in recent years have provoked great rioting, all a moot point, for they have no power to reverse the regulations that have been thrust on them by their socialist government. About now, some of you are, who are regular listeners to this podcast may be asking, Hey, Kenny, I thought you were not getting into the political fray. Again, let me say... Please understand me. My reason for addressing this contemporary issue is because it points to the fact that the beginning of things has been abandoned, and now we will begin to bear the fallout from it. I'm going to be launching uh, some thoughts on beginnings, dealing with the book of of, uh, Genesis and where we came from. But folks, the overarching issue on why all this is happening is because we have abandoned our beginnings. And now we're bearing the fallout from it. As we prepare to look at what the Bible has to say about our beginning, we need to understand how we now are so deviated from the truth. Before I go any further, let me make it truly clear that the Bible, through the prophecies recorded in it, gives us the roadmap to the end of this world as we know it. And I can tell you with firm confidence, it is not through climate change, but through the direct, catastrophic, divine judgment of sinful man. The fall corrupted all of creation. God to date is withholding his impending wrath and hit the pause button on sure wrath in what theologians call the age of grace. God in his mercy and love extends the eternal pardon of sin and the impending eternal judgment of the sinner if the person will only bow to Jesus as the Savior and Lord of the universe. What we see playing out before us on the world stage and our American stage can be tracked to at least three key events and their historical fallout. 
This is not an exhaustive list, but these things are key. Event number one, the publishing of the Manifesto of the Communist Party by Karl Marx and Frederick Engel in February of 1848. The first and fundamental tenet of Marxism, it says it right up front in what became known as the Communist Manifesto, is that there is no God, and this is the central core foundational element of Marxism upon which all other things are tethered, tethered and have their life and being. There is no God of any kind, especially creator God, and the state is infallibly supreme all to the detriment of individual man. This is the atheism of politics, the ejecting of God from politics. The polis has to do with the city, how the cities are run, how we are gathered together and organized as human beings. God ejected. That started in 1848, folks. It didn't just start in the past 50 years here in the United States. Event number two, the publishing of The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin on November 24th, 1859. Do you see the progression? Destruction of God in the politics. <clears throat> now destruction of God in the sciences. <clears throat> this happened on November 24th, 1859. The abolishment of God, the abolition of God, especially creator God, the atheism of science. So right in the middle of the 1800s, the abolition of God in politics. The second thing was the abolition of God in science. The third thing that happened to us here in the United States was the <clears throat> Civil War was the Civil War that followed right on the heels of the abolition of God in politics, the abolition of God in science. But then Satan injected into the midst of this country, okay, through the discussion over slavery, uh, a, div a deep division that we have never healed from, that we have never healed from. And it's interesting that Abraham Lincoln <clears throat> was inaugurated as, as president right before the war and he was assassinated right at the end of the war. He was raised up for that time. You can draw a lot of conclusions from that. But folks, the third event that has happened to us as a local people, and I speak to those here in the United States, <clears throat> that has been the, the final shoe that dropped was the, the, the war between the states. The tyranny and the, 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 the evilness and the, the murderous spirit that rose up in this country. And I tell you, I speak from a place to where the bloodstains are still on the floorboards of the mansions here in my city. These mansions that were used to house the troops of the Civil War and used them like the hospitals. And I'm telling you, a lot of people killed. The Battle of Nashville was one of the most murderous battles in all of the Civil War. But yet in Nashville... When I first moved here, one of the first things I did was come to a meeting and they were talking about this uh, core racism that exists. And as I heard them speak, I'm like, I don't understand this. This is not where I come from. But I got a, an education that here in, I moved here in 18, just shocked that to this day, the schism that exists in Nashville regarding the relationships between those who are black and those who are white. And it's tragic to think that this far removed from the Civil War that we still have that much enmity and for all of the actions and for all of the conferences and for all the convenings and for all the rejections of racism and the cry out of uh, confessions that the tension is here. And so folks, these things have damaged us. The first, it damaged us politically. The second, it damaged us scientifically, but the revolutionary, the, the, not the revolutionary, but the Civil War, uh, it put a schism in the United States that we've never healed from. And it begins to appear that perhaps we never will. And so the, the division runs deep in our country, and it's there for a reason. Satan has done everything he can in every form and fashion to create destruction, to create sadness, to steal, kill, and destroy. But with no sense of responsibility to a creator God, either politically or scientifically or socially, and cut off from the truth because of the rejection of the Bible as God's direct revelation to man regarding his perspective on his creation, man now is left afloat on a sea of despair that sees the results of the fall both in himself and in the world and is left to his own devices to rectify the damage. And so if you want to be as benevolent as possible and say to those who are pounding the drum, uh, regarding climate change, I worked with a young man who had a going ministry 
in the Hirschulis Bedford area. He was a Christian, truly loved the Lord, I believe, and doing real things to make a difference in the lives of people who were hungry and who were homeless. And yet he was convinced that climate change is real and was almost militant about it. And so we're talking about people on all sides of the spectrum who claim Jesus, who hold to certain beliefs. But the advancement of the ideology of climate change has great value to many different components within the geopolitical and economic realm. All aspects lead to more authoritarian reach and control and burdensome taxation on energy and development and the redistribution of wealth. Now, folks, that's not just my opinion. If you were to do an honest study of climate change, that these are the tenets that are going to come home to bear for every single person, regardless of political affiliation. And how we got here, as I've demonstrated, is no accident of circumstances, but a very well-organized plan and program that has been worked at since at least, regarding these contemporary issues, since at least April 22nd of 1970. In, in Carl uh, Tykrib's, and I guess it's Tykrib or Tyshrib, T-E-I-C-H-R-I-B, in his book, Game of Gods, The Temple of Man in the Age of Reenchantment, he writes concerning about these things that have massaged us down the path to where we are today, the worship of earth as mother, sustainer, and man assigned savior. He writes, and this is in the middle of the book, and he had been talking about Carl Sagan, the, I guess you would call him a physicist or whatever. He says, like so many of his generation talking about Carl Sagan, captivated by the promises of the space age, it was ironically the images of earth from space that captivated us. Looking from our elevated position, we had suddenly discovered our worthy goal. Highlighting this obscure yet interesting aspect of the space age, author Marina Benjamin gives us a literary glimpse into the power of the Earth's image. She writes, The American program never got past the moon's first base, a feeble effort by cosmic standards like chucking tin cans across the backyard, and even then homesickness prevailed over the imperative to press onward and up upward. Images of our lush, fragile globe beamed back from afar made cooing, protective converts of the most forward-thinking rationalists, and before long, many of these had swallowed themselves in Gaia and environmentalism. Exploration was out and conservation was in. Worse still, at least for those of my generation who had imbibed space-age dreams along with our mother's milk, space itself was internalized, its dark, brooking depths becoming little more than a poetic analog for the uncharted continents of the human mind. Within less than a decade of landing on the moon, all our outward-bound aspirations had more or less turned in on themselves. To add to this irony, the, pe uh, the principal people we have to thank for this unexpected legacy are none other than the astronauts. Astronaut Dick Gordon told Benjamin, People are always asking what we discovered when we went to the moon. What we discovered was the Earth. Edgar Mitchell of Apollo 14 fame was so enchanted that he founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences, IONS, an organization focusing on global peace, parapsychology, and holism. That's a key word, folks, holism. Look it up. From an IONS document we read, on his journey back to the planet of his birth, Mitchell saw the Earth rise on the horizon and was profoundly moved. His striking vision of life's interconnectedness, of the inherent link between science and spirituality, was the spark of inspiration that created IONS. Looking for a, quote, a new story to answer the questions in the space age of who we are, how we got here, and where we're going, Mitchell, the astronaut, gravitated to Willis Harmon and the SRI Changing Images of Man program. Look that up. SRI Changing Images of Man. <clears throat> Harmon joined the IONS board of directors. It quickly connected with Esalen, E-S-A-L-E-N, and became an integral part of the budding New Age network. To the renowned astronaut, the most important aspect of the entire Apollo program was how it changed consciousness. All are interconnected. Another key theme, folks, that's being wound through everything in our society. And this should be viewed as living, thinking, intelligent organism on the cosmic scale. Mitchell described his space revelation in the context of bonding science and religion, bringing Eastern spirituality and Western traditions together as a divine body compatible with science and to change science in a way that made it compatible with divine ideas. Now, before you say, well, isn't that a good thing, Kenny? The merging of, of science with the divine ideas? Well, but keep in mind, we're not talking about divine ideals that lead back to a creator God. Okay, that's not what they're talking about. This spiritual material symbiosis was all part of Gaia. Mother Earth. Earth Day, the first national environmental teach-in, April 22nd, 1970, became a defining moment in the modern environmental movement. I still remember that, folks. I was alive at that time, 
And as a child in elementary school, we participated in Earth Day. I still have, I think it's the eight cent stamp that came out celebrating Earth Day. I used to be an, a stamp collector when I, until I found out that they actually have no value at all unless you have some of the beginning stamps. But anyway, styled after the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations on American campuses, this teach-in, initiated by Senator Gaylord Nelson, was meant to create a revolutionary ethic. Young people across the country were questioning and rejecting what were considered to be traditional American values. Nelson believed the teach-in would empower this wandering generation with a new sense of purpose. As a, pol- as a politician, the senator also understood that if young people identified as environmental citizens, then the federal government could take vital first steps towards a system of far- far-reaching regulations. He envisioned a national land use policy. Hey, we live that in spades. A national policy on air and water. Yes, we live that in spades. An ocean policy. Yes, we live that in spades. A policy for resource management. Absolutely. A national policy on resource management and land management and a national policy on population. Nelson, the senator, was aware that these initiatives would interfere with American livelihoods, more or less saying as much in a Look article published the day before the teach-in. So he understood from the outset that the goals and initiatives that he was importing into this country were going to have direct impact on American livelihoods and interference, which means a negative downturn for people individually. But so what? The future of the planet was at stake, or so as everyone was told. On that day, the 22nd of April, approximately 20 million Americans participated in rallies, marches, and demonstrations. 20 million. Folks, look at what the population of the United States was that long ago. What's that, 50 years ago, 60 years ago? That was a large percentage of the population, especially when you talk about the fact that it was students and children. The event included local beach cleanups, tree plantings, horseback rides down interstate highways, parades of gas-masked marchers in urban centers, open-air campus teach-ins on ecology, and a thousand other innovations on a theme. Leading environmentalist Barry Commoner described it as an enthusiastic outburst, saying it was the impetus for the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to begin its work. On Earth Day, explained Nelson, the following month, it was estimated that 2,000 college campuses, 2,000 community groups, and 10,000 elementary and secondary schools were holding events. An entire generation was awakening to the idea of being Earth citizens. Does that sound familiar? Folks, I'm not making this up. This has been going on a long time. And yet, tell me the last time that you heard your pastor talk about anything to do with what's happening to our culture and our world, and how that there is a systemized, organized plan behind it. It's not just happening willy-nilly. To facilitate this green revolution, aligning itself with a religious revolution and cultural revolution already in motion, Friends of the Earth published the Environmental Handbook, a resource prepared ahead of time for the teach-in. Let me just stop right there and say, folks, something that you have to give credit for or give credit to for these people is that those who have ideologies that they want to promote and they want the ideology to become a part of the fabric of their city, of their state, of their country, of their world, they are, number one, they're willing to put their money and their resources behind it. Uh, Look at what Mark Zuckerberg did from from, uh, Facebook, and he took and gave his stock over to that organization that prior to had only received up to $100,000 in one year. He gave them over $500 million to put the mail receptacles in five states to where people could drop off their ballots in the mail receptacle. Some speculate with good cause that because the people did not deposit them in the U.S. mail, then they could not be found guilty of mail fraud if in fact that they chose to put additional ballots into that box. Okay, at this point, I'm not making the charge that someone was behind that, but the point of it is that these boxes that were paid for by Mark Zuckerberg's cashing out of just a fraction of his wealth, he was willing to put his money where his mouth is, okay? And you have to say, wait, you know, this isn't just happening by accident, but it's happening because people who believe in what they believe in are willing to take it to the mat to invest their money. Not only that, to invest their time, to invest their intellect, to come up with procedures and processes and plans that integrate and that captivate, okay? So it's not an accident, but you have to give them credit for that. The handbook offered a radical vision as displayed in its opening pages. The author of the book goes on to say, Lynn White's Jr.'s famous essay, The Historical Roots of Our Ecological Crisis, it was first published by Science Magazine in 1967, was printed near the front of the handbook. Christianity was to blame, so a new religion was needed. Now, did you hear what I just said? We haven't waked up in this day because of just the nefarious deeds of a few people who have 
ideology to take over the world. This has been a planned, programmatic, well-orchestrated series of events by people who care, who are willing to be relentless in their pursuit of their ideology. But Christianity, in absolute contrast to ancient paganism and Asia's religions, not only established a dualism of man and nature, in other words, man is separate from nature, that is Christian thinking, but also insisted that it is God's will that man exploit nature for his proper ends. Now, that term exploit is pejorative against the Christians written by somebody who perceives them to be that. But yet, a, a credible conservative theologian who believes that the Bible is the Word of God would not ever say that God's thinking towards the planet is that man is to exploit nature for his proper ends. The Bible makes it clear, and we'll get into this in the book of Genesis, that God placed man in the garden to tend the garden, to care for the garden. And so nowhere in the scripture does it lean to the idea that God says, man, you're free to exploit and just to do destruction beyond measure. But at the same time, as we talk about re-engaging China, look at the destruction that that nation Im Im imposes on nature, just catastrophic destruction and danger to its own people. And yet we turn a blind eye to it. So, you know, here we are at the level of the common people. I'm going on at the level of the common people. This worked out in an interesting way. In antiquity, every tree, every spring, every stream, every hill, talking about in history past, had its own genius loci, its guardian spirit. These spirits were accessible to men. This is talking about people in their pagan worship. So in other words, the exaltation of the created rather than the creator. He goes on to say, before one cut a tree, mined a mountain, or dammed a brook, it was important to placate the spirit in charge of that particular situation and to keep it placated. By destroying pagan animism, Christianity made it possible to exploit nature in a mood of indifference to the feelings of natural objects. Again, that's a pejorative attitude from someone who's prejudiced against Christians, or perhaps who have seen people who claim that they know Christ and yet do destructive things to themselves, to their families, to their employees, and to the world, okay? But he goes on, the author says, what do we do? What we do about ecology depends on our ideas of the man-nature relationship. More science and more technology are not going to get us out of our present ecological crisis until we find a new religion or rethink our old one. These are the people promoting <clears throat> this uh, material back in the 60s. No set of basic values has been accepted in our society to displace those of Christianity. Hence, we shall continue to have a worsening ecological crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Do you hear that, folks? That was coming out of the ideology that now we're living with. Both our present science and our present technology are so tinctured with orthodox Christian arrogance toward nature that no solution for our ecological crisis can be expected from them alone. Since the roots of our trouble are so largely religious, the remedy must also be essentially religious, whether we call it that or not. Everything, however, must change. Total transformation. And it goes on to talk about the fact that the impact of this ideology coming under the guise of earth worship has to do with everything from the implementation of abortion and the, the control of the population through such and every form of other evil that has crept into our nation, into our world. The circumstances which we find ourselves in now, and it's, it's a crisis mode. I mean, can you imagine if 30 presidential orders, which are far-reaching within three days, where are we headed with presidential orders plus an unrestrained Congress for all practical purposes? Okay, you have to ask yourself, where are we headed? And let me tell you something. It is creating, creating major tension in people who are aware all of this pressure and all of this ideology that's coming home to roost, not just in the United States, but across the globe, it's, it's destructive. It's terrorizing the people of our planet. And so as we sit here and I go, okay, this is why we're here. And so there's got to be some radical changes within each of us if we're to have any hope of survival against an onslaught of organized, well-funded, long time thought out implementation of processes that ultimately hurt you and I as an individual. And let me say right now, some of you who are listening to this very podcast may be located in one of the nations to where they have uh, doubly and triply clamped down again. And it is a terrible situation to be. And I want to let you know that, dear friend, that I am interceding for you and that there are people across this globe who still have a heart towards mankind who understand that, wait, this is a terrible time. We need each other. And we have to come together and we have to rise up and we have to gain strength from Almighty God and make a determination that 
Okay. And and where this comes to to me today is I speak about peace, 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 peace. And uh, Jesus talked about this generation says peace when there is no peace. Okay. And I want you to know what I'm talking about today is coming to a place, grabbing a hold of real peace that works and exists in the midst of what I have talked about today. Okay. Let me say to you that this is absolutely possible and that the peace that passes understanding that Jesus gives is something that he imparts and that is experienced, felt, and known and lived and enjoyed in the midst of everything I've just talked about. This is the reality in which we live. If things don't change, it's going to become much more difficult before it becomes much better. And so, folks, we have to come to a place to say, you know what? But I am going to rise up to the occasion. I am going to choose to be different because there is also an aspect of peace that the Bible talks about that takes a choice on your part and my part. Okay? It's a mystery. It's something that God imparts, but at the same time, it's something that you have to do. It is an action. And just do your own personal word study. Everybody listening to this has a smartphone more than likely if you don't have a home computer. Do a word study on the term peace in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you will see, especially Jesus, the peace that he talks about is also something that is to be pursued. It's to be something sought after, which means that it requires action on your part. At the same time that you cry out to the Almighty God and you say, well, God, where's your peace? I'm crumbling. I'm being crushed. That it is something that you have to do through the power of God's Holy Spirit, that's the only way you can do it is by knowing Christ as your Savior and appealing to His Holy Spirit to where you submit your mind to the Word of God and you allow it to transform you so that your thinking changes to where your mind does not crater and turn inward and spiral out of control, which produces anxiety, it produces stress, it produces turmoil, it produces hate. It produces anger and everything that is in opposition to peace. And so we can stay, okay, that because the government's doing this, that's why I'm acting the way I am. No, it's not. We cannot place our poor actions or our sin onto the back of someone else, regardless of what they're doing. You and I individually are responsible for ourselves before the Almighty Creator God. And let me just give you an encouraging reminder, as bleak as things look, that the people who are in control of all the systems of the world, they're not in control. And that if you will saturate your mind with the word of God and be of constant good cheer that Jesus said, I've overcome the world and that this is my father's world and that the testimony through scripture is his guiding of circumstances in the lives of human beings to bring about his redemptive purposes on this globe. He is about redemption until the day of judgment, which is coming. And the book of Revelation speaks to that and we are going to address that. But the good news is, is that if Someone wakes up in the middle of the night, regardless of what position they hold in Congress or the presidency or in the different branches of government, at the moment that we think that things can't get any worse and that the people that are in control of things that are crushing our planet, it appears that they can't change, that folks through the power and the majesty of the wonder of God, that he can reach the the hardest heart. And so I want to give you encouragement, but we've got to toughen up and to say that, hey, these are the things that are happening. We did not just get here on the bus today. These things have been a long train coming. They started at least the the beginning of the downfall of our world in the middle 1800s with the atheistic approach to politics and the atheistic approach to science. And then for our own country, the catastrophic failure of the, the unity blown to bits by internal strife that has not vacated these shores since that terrible war. And so, my friend, I want to give you encouragement. The Bible says that God is near those who are brokenhearted. He is near those who are suffering. And I want to encourage you that you do not walk through this time alone. We've got to rise up. We've got to be strong. We have people around us who are hurting in every form and fashion. And we've got to come together. We have to form community in any way we can, whether it be online whether it be just uh, listening to someone who has encouraging words to say through a podcast or a vlog, a video project on YouTube. But folks, even within that, there can be a sense of feeling of community that, in other words, I'm bound with other people on this planet. I want to finish with this, and this has to do with us preparing our minds for battle because we are being assaulted from every angle in this time. 
But God wants us to know his peace. He wants us to choose peace. He wants us to pursue peace and not crater and not fold and not to throw up our hands and to say, God, help us. He is here. He is helping us. He is going to see us through this difficult time. And if you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you have the promise that this is not the end of the story. Thank the Lord in heaven that heaven is a real place and it's going to be a place of eternal bliss and the way that God intended for things to be. But I want to finish with this passage. I've covered it before in my podcast. It's fundamental. Ephesians chapter 6, talking about Christian warfare. And folks, so how are we going to stand strong in the evil day? We're in the evil day. The globe is being vomited on by evil. And we can be victorious, finally be strengthened by the Lord in his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. And so for this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. So the goal, folks, is to be left standing. It's sort of like playing, you know, king of the hill. Okay, the person left standing was the victor. Well, if you want to be the victor in life today, you've got to stand up. We've got to stop whining. I heard a friend of mine say that his pastor had to confess that uh, what he was doing and ranting at the TV or having something to the effect of having an argument with television is wrong. It says loser. It says weak. It says vulnerable. But yet that's not what the Bible says. Stand. Therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert with all perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Folks, we are not in this alone, that we belong to a community of saints. And it's interesting that in the Bible, where it talks about community, that it is something that transcends when the apostle Paul was talking about to all the saints and this community, he didn't have the cell phone. He didn't have television. He didn't have video. He didn't have the telegraph. He had nothing, but yet it was clear that this connection that runs through the saints is, is real. Okay. It's beyond comprehension or description because why? Because it is from almighty God himself, this interconnectivity of us as a human beings. We're not alone. Pray also for me that the message may be given to me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For this, I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I might be bold enough to speak about it as I should. And so, dear friend, be of good cheer. Be strong. Develop a backbone empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life that says, hey, we got this. My granddaughter, she uh, and she's just now five, so this has been like about a year and a half ago, some song where she comes in singing, I got this, you got this. We got this together. She used to say together, meaning together, but just optimistic that, you know what? We do have this thing. We don't do it alone. We do it based in Jesus Christ and with the fellowship of believers that is possible through his residential power living in us. And with that, I bid you peace. Peace.